Welcome back to the Declaration Podcast. My name is Ty DeClaire, and I am so grateful for you tuning in today. I would like to thank Patreon for all the support. Over in the Declaration Squad, we have Matt Nath at Matt Nath. Thank you so much. Over in the Angels, we have Chris Pierce at Chris Pierce 103. Give the world a hug today. Go pick up some litter. Uh, upload that to Twitter, Instagram, what have you. Use the hashtag World Litter Run. And uh, yeah, you'll hear a little more about the World Litter Run as the show goes on today. I would also like to thank Mason Tim at the Bear to Bear 95 and Boyan Antonoff at Boyan V Antonoff. Head on over to patreon.com slash the declaration online if you would like to support the show. And uh, during the month of November, all proceeds of Patreon are doubled and will be going to the Movember page. I guess that's the right word of Matt, Boyan, and Mason. And uh, the link for that can be found in the show notes or, uh, yeah, what, what have you. You'll find the link on this show somewhere. Last week, I had talked a lot about anxiety, having some new stressors, and trying to you know do some sort of active solutions. And uh, I'd like to give an update on that. So I uh, gave myself the challenge of breaking a sweat every day, a la the declaration challenge from January. And uh, I had recorded that intro on Saturday. So basically from Saturday to Saturday, I broke a sweat every day. Yay. And uh, it, I'd like to say it did have the effect that I hope it would. Um, I just, you know, I wasn't focusing on killing myself with a sweat. All I wanted to do was break a sweat, get active, remind myself that, you know, exercise is there when I need it as a stress reliever, as an anxiety reliever, as an antidepressant, and just all the good benefits that come with exercise. I was able to remind myself about that through this. Plus, it was just about keeping myself in motion and, you know, protecting myself against myself when it comes to my self-care. Um, you know, you don't have to, like I said, you don't have to kill yourself to be active or to be healthy or happy. You just have to keep yourself in motion, which, I mean, again, we'll talk more about that on the show with Luke. Um, I can't wait to share this show with you. It's amazing. Um, also, I, I did mention talking about, you know, uh, meditation last episode. And while I didn't do any, like, formal meditation, I did stop, like, I, I took a conscious breath and stopped at various points throughout my day and really did try to make a point of it to not just try and drown out my, let's say, my, my walk commute to work uh, with a podcast or music. I actively just kind of listened to nature and maybe even stopping along the walk and just taking a breath and taking in everything around me or when I'm at home before I go to bed is just calming my mind before I try and hop in. Just these little moments that we can find throughout the day just to reconnect and recenter ourselves are just invaluable. And I would highly recommend that everyone does that. Um, and during this week, I definitely found that there was a lot of times that I didn't want to do these things. I didn't want to work out. I didn't want to break a sweat. I didn't really want to meditate. But at a certain point, you just got to do it. Which brings us to the show today with Luke McDonald, Bria's dad, my soon-to-be father-in-law, an amazing human being. You can find him on in, on Twitter at Luke Shoe Fitter and at Aerobics First. 
uh, on Instagram. You can find him at Luke underscore a underscore McDonald. Uh, he is a part owner of aerobics first, an amazing human being, a community activist. Um, you could probably give about 87 titles here to describe Luke, but honestly, just, I would let his ventures, his accomplishments, his impact on the world speak for themselves. Um, if you use the hashtag world litter run on any social media handle, you'll find a plethora of, of litter that has been picked up around the world and a significant impact just to our, our world. And, um, you know, Luke gets into on the show, but you know, his, um, his motivations and just, it really helped me to understand the person that I know on a deeper level. And it makes what he does through his day to day, make a lot more sense since having this conversation with him. You could also check out the hashtag fit it forward where Luke has made his, uh, his goal to put a shoe on every homeless person in the Halifax and Nova Scotia area, which is just an amazing venture. And again, speaks volumes to the person that Luke is. So on the show today, we discuss Luke's origin story, uh, you know, starting again after an injury, the, some impactful books that he's had in his life, uh, finding the solution in a you know, in a time that can seem negative or uh, just, you know, finding the solution in general. Yeah, uh, it is, there's so much we talked about. I really can't uh, can't say enough about it. And it was probably the easiest podcast I've ever had to do because I really didn't speak until like 40 minutes into this thing. So that should tell you the type of show we have. Um, yeah, so let's just get to it. Review the show wherever you're listening. Um, hit me with that five stars. It would mean the world to me. Uh, share this with a friend, share it on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, what have you. Uh, listen on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, you can listen to this podcast. And last but not least, have an amazing week. You're an amazing person. You're, you're someone's every. You're someone's everything. There we go. That's the words I'm looking for. Please welcome Luke McDonald. You've housed me. You've uh, given me shoes and socks and such, and now I've gotten you on the podcast. So thank you for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, yeah. actually. I just had a nice 8K run at the store, and uh, so I'm a feeling. I'm feeling a little bit tired, but uh, in a good way. That's good. Yeah, um, I know. Since moving to Halifax, I've tried to do more running and. I think it was my second day here. You took me on like a 15k ride on the stand-up bike. And, oh uh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely destroyed me, and that was uh, just that was a wonderful entrance to Halifax. <laughs> Off the Shearwater Flyer tra- Trail. Yeah. yeah, it was nice. It was a it was a good day, and I was actually pretty impressed that uh, you handled the whole 15k because the last 3k is pretty rough, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty hilly. The last uh, the last 3k is tough. Well, we can get into a bunch of like the things you do, but when you went to pick up some litter and like you left me on that trail there, as soon as you rounded the corner, I was like, "Shade, lie down, <laughs> can't move." <laughs> it was uh, it was uh, it was trying at the end there, but we we made it home. 
I was impressed with myself. I couldn't really walk for a week or oh, so. Oh yeah, but that was, good. good. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's how you build, right? Yeah, break <laughs> yeah. you down first. Yeah, exactly. Um, I so, forgot. Yeah. I forgot we picked up a little bit of litter there. Yeah, yeah. I usually do that parking lot. Whenever I go for a ride, I try to give the world a hug, so to speak. Yeah, um, that's um, like, you know, Halifax. Everyone knows everyone, but a lot of people seem to know who you are, and a lot of people seem to think that you're an amazing person just for all of the the things that you do not for yourself but for those around you well it's it's less altruistic than it appears to be <laughs> okay uh you know there's you know part of my mission at the store is to reduce community stress hmm. and if we reduce community stress people will feel safer and more likely to spend money that's that's fair right <laughs> yeah and so because we're in the athletic business uh it behooves us to reduce as much stress as possible uh and you can do it through movement and action mm-hmm. and so the action part for me had really started after i had a significant wipeout on my elliptigo and that was february 2011 i believe and i landed on my head and i sat here on the coach of death after eight days in the hospital, I sat here for five weeks. Hmm. And what I discovered uh, previous to that, I would probably read three or four books a month. And I'd have an ongoing book, uh, a fifth book that would just put me to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd pick a classic like uh, uh, Lincoln's Melancholy or something like this that would just be a long, boring read. Uh that would put me to sleep. But after the wipeout, I couldn't read anymore. Hmm. And uh, I couldn't read a, a page because of a significant concussion. So what I did during that five weeks is I took all my books and I read all the highlights hmm. and all the notes in them. But I read them backwards because most books sort of surmise. So I just read my... And when, when I, what I did is I took the context and the story out to try to figure out why this person who read these books highlighted those sections. Hmm. And so that's, you know, uh, that's sort of what I did. And from there, I sort of decided that I'd rebuild a purpose. Um, and I started to consider all the stories that I had, but I never thought of them, thought, thought of them as one story. So I said, let's make this one story and how do I connect the dots with all of it so I can streamline it. And I don't necessarily have to tell it to everybody. Uh, I just have to know that there's consistency in everything that I do. And so that's so I decided to rebuild. And one of the interesting parts was uh, when I was looking at the books, I sort of revisited you know, how I became a public speaker when I used to have severe anxiety about speaking in public and more specifically reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hated to read uh, out loud. Uh, and because I hated to read out loud, I thought naturally that I wouldn't want to speak out loud in front of anybody. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was 1995 or six, just after Bria got born, uh, I got back hooked up with David Frazier, who is the original owner of Aerobics First. And he invited me into a book club because I happened, you know, he was in the shop 
And I happened to talk about, uh, I was reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And he said, our book club just started that. I said, no kidding. He said, why don't you come in? And that would be 20 years ago. And he was 55 and I was 35. But his book club, everybody that was in it was sort of his age, 55. And I remember them saying to me, Luke, you are so lucky to be here at 35 listening to our problems because all our problems happen between 35 and 55. Mm. And now we're going to talk about it and we're going to read books. And that was the point at which I start to highlight books because before all my books were pristine. I didn't like to write in them, didn't like to highlight. And so that's when I start to highlight books. And one of the books, so we read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And what we did when we, when we highlighted it we would highlight in different colors and each color was um, associated with one person in the club. So if we thought about this person Interesting. and either thought of them like this is you or this is what you would do, we'd highlight that. And then that uh, was a big point of discussion. And so that's our, sort of how we operated. But I ended up get, becoming pretty tight with these guys and they, you know, Basically, I was lucky at 35 to have you know five significant mentors, mm-hmm. and two of them, uh, two of them still to this day, uh, Dave and another guy named Ian Ross. And Ian Ross, I try to speak to at least four or five times a year, and Dave, you know, at least two or three times. Um, and so, so the one of the interesting parts was sort of two things. One of the books we read, I believe it was called Flight of the Buffalo. I can't remember the author. But in that book, it said, read this book as if you're going to teach it. Hmm. And then that's what solidified my anxiety about writing in books. So if I was going to read the book as if I was going to teach it, uh, I would have to highlight it, write it. And then I also ran into a book. Uh, I ran into another program. I ran into another program, which was called Windows. And in Windows, they had something called PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. And back then, that was unique. Oh, yeah. Because everybody, uh, at the time, Corel was significantly ahead of uh, Microsoft, and they had presentations. Mm -hmm. And so everybody was using that. Uh, And so I started to use this thing called PowerPoint, and I put all my notes from all my books in it, and I build presentations. And then I start to do stuff like this. Habits. Habits. And I made an acronym out of the habits word. Habit is habits, attitude, balance, interest, truth, and sacrifice. Hmm. So what happened was we were going through this stuff. And I had a, a buddy. His name is Dom Burgoyne. Uh, he was from Middleton. I can't remember how I knew him, but he knew about me somehow. Uh, and he sent his friend in. A guy, I think, is a Gary Morehouse, to uh, to um, Sport Check in um, Halifax Shopping Center to buy a pair of shoes from me. So he and his wife came in, and lo and behold, wasn't he reading Covey as well? Hmm. And so I sold him a pair of shoes, and we talked about Stephen Covey the whole time. And at the end of it, he said, "Luke, have you ever?" done any public speaking i said no 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 i won't even i won't even read out loud let alone stand in front of a group and talk to them about anything 
He said, well, you should because you, you would be a great speaker. I said, well, I, I have nothing to talk about. And he said, well, you just talk about what we just talked about. I said, geez, I don't think I could do that. And then he said, well, we do a pre-retirement seminar, and I think you'd be excellent, you know, to do a you know twenty-five or thirty-minute talk in front of our group. And uh, you know, I just had a moment. I said, no, no, I, I won't do that. And then I said, okay, I'll do it, because what flashed into my head was, read this book as if you're going to teach it. And I had already built this because I was teaching it to myself, yeah. which was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And so I said, Gary, do you know what? I'm going to do it. And uh, he said, great. It's in two weeks. Then I, you know, I uh, memorized all this stuff and I read, you know, that's when I started to listen to the tapes mm. because I had to have it on all the time. So I really learned it. I yeah. said, Okay, so now I have the book, I have the backdrop, I have this. And uh, uh, I'm about to go into the presentation, and this is my first ever presentation. I have this thing on the easel. But I'm sort of looking into the room, and the room wasn't set up like a theater. It was set up in a U, mm. a typical U shape. Mm -hmm. But I had never seen that before. I'd never spoken in public before, and I never saw. And so right away... I was out of kilter. Right. And I said, oh my God, I have to stand in front of the U. Like, I, I won't know how to do, I don't, won't know how to operate in the room. And so I was outside the room and I was getting really anxious. And all of a sudden, one person at a time, the people were leaving the room. And I was saying, like, why are you leaving? And a couple of the ladies that came were literally in tears. And uh, I said, well, what's he talking about? He's, he's a financial planner. And he's saying, you know, uh, you started at, you know, if you have a million dollars in retirement, this is what you should do with it. But he only went down to 100000 She said, I have no money. Mm. And so three or four ladies came out in tears because they had no money for the retirement. And this guy scared the shit out of them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going into this room where half the people are crying and completely stressed. And I'm doing my first ever speaking in public at the World Trading Convention Center. And everybody in there is all dressed up. And I'm in a track suit. You know, I just, I'm thinking, I am so out of place. Well, at least you came dressed as yourself. Yeah, I came dressed as myself. And I got in there, I set it up. But then I also uh, put a camcorder up in the corner so I could record it. So I could deconstruct my presentation. So I thought that was a pretty good idea. So I turned on the recorder, I got in front, I got introduced as Luke McDonald, a, a shoe fitter at, and, and manager of uh, uh, Sport Check in Halifax Shopping Center. And, you know, he's a good local runner and stuff like that. And he said my times. And then I proceeded, proceeded to present Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm -hmm. And it was horrible. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. I, was, I embarrassed myself. I made enough jokes that I got through it. And so I got through it. I did my 30 minutes. It was terrible. I was embarrassed. I couldn't look at the video. And I said, that's it. I am never speaking in public again. And so Gary comes up to me. He said, Luke, that was horrible. <laughs> and he says, why did you present on seven habits of highly effective people? And I said, well, that's what you told me to present. 
He said, no, no, no. I wanted to, I want you to talk about what we talked about the whole time. I said, we talked about Stephen Covey the whole time. He said, no, no, no. You talked to me about how my shoe fits. I wanted you to talk about fitting shoes. I said, no kidding. That would have been easy. <laughs> and so he asked me back. And I said, you sure you want me back? as a mess. He said, just talk about the shoe fit. And so the next time I came back, I propped this thing back up. And he's going, oh, no, not that board again. And what I did is on the back of it, I turned it over. And my whole presentation was, buy bigger shoes. <laughs> and I talked about that for 20 minutes, got a standing ovation. Everybody had a lot of laughs. And I became a public speaker. Huh. So that's the story about miscommunication, nervousness, anxiousness, not knowing your audience. Yeah, it's all there. And it's all there. And what year was that? That would have been 95 or 6. 95 or 6. And so that I proceeded to do that as my baseline for storytelling. Because you can't, like what I can teach, I can teach shoe fitting in one minute. Yeah. The rest is storytelling and becoming likable. And so you have to tell a story in such a likable way that then they come and buy shoes for you. Which, again, you know, it's not necessarily altruistic. It's about being likable. And so a very important part of our store at Aerobics First, uh, you know, is how do we become likable mm -hmm. so that our story is understood so that, you know, people will continue to buy from us. We're a 40-year-old store mm -hmm. that's basically unheard of. Uh, and I've been selling shoes for 40 years. And so that became a very strong marketing avenue for, for me was to be able to uh, tell stories that are intertwined around something really, really simple. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we built out, uh, eventually built out the story. Because at that time, you know, I was going through, you know, once I started to read uh, these books and hang out with the 55-year-olds, they gave me the courage to really make some significant maneuvers, uh, one of which was, you know, firing uh, my first district manager at sports uh, at Sportcheck. At that time, it was actually Sports Experts, and it was being bought out by Sportcheck. And we got a new district uh, manager who was absolutely horrible. She was just. Her name is Joan Carroll, so I don't, also don't mind naming names, but this person was just, <laughs> she was just terrible. So she, uh, when, you know, I was, uh, I worked for a guy named Dean Hartman for many years, and the, there was sort of uh, basically a hostile takeover of Dean's independent franchisees, and we ended up becoming sports experts corporate and then sports experts corporate was being bought out by Forzani group. And I was sort of the last man standing of Dean's era. And I always knew as a, my best thing was shoe fitting. And these guys, you know, I ended up being the only guy that they actually trusted. And I thought I'd be the first to go because, you know, I was the closest person in my view to Dean. So I thought I'd be, get the punt really quick. But they were going through a significant reorganization and they were going to, you know, Micmac Mall was a, was the, the anchor store in the local chain, but they were opening up a big box store in uh, Bears Lake Industrial Park. 
It was going to be the sport check. And they eventually wanted me to run it. And I said, listen, what you're going to do, and I said, you can read any business book, is you never make your best salesperson the manager because hmm. he's the best salesperson or she is. And I said, I'm the best salesperson. I don't want to manage a store. And they said, well, either are going to manage it or you're going to lose your job. I said, oh, okay, I guess I'll manage the store. <laughs> and so the first thing I did when I went over there is I took the job descriptions for the, the store manager, which was supposed to be me, uh, the assistant manager, and the uh, and senior sales. And so what I did at that time, you know, we didn't have computers really. Like we had a computer, but it just did numbers. Uh, so what I did is I took all the job descriptions, which were in hard copy, and I photocopied them, and then I cut the heads off them. Then I re-photocopied them with the job descriptions with a different job. Hmm. So the senior sales became assistant manager, assistant manager became manager, and the manager became senior sales. Hmm. So as the manager, my responsibilities were that of the senior sales. And then each of my guys uh, that were at the store... Uh, they didn't know any better. And so I ran the store like that. And and so when I went over to, because I, what I did was they wanted me to run Micmac Mall. I said, I don't want the big store. Why don't you get Scott to run the big one and I'll run the little one. And they said, well, we're going to close that in a year, so you shouldn't take the little one and you're not going to make nearly as much money. I said, it's not about the money. I'd rather have the little one because Scott wants the big one and I know that I'm not a strong manager. I'm just a good salesperson. And they were surprised because I was going to lose probably $25,000 a year as a result of that decision. Uh, and they said, yeah, okay, actually that solves a, a pretty significant problem for us because we knew that Scott wanted this and we're going to give it to you first. And I said, no, I don't want it. I'll take the little one. I said, but if you can let me continue to buy for the store because they had centralized buying. So if you let me buy for the store and let me run the store my way the last year, I'll take it, and then a year from now, we'll just see what happens. I'll roll the dice. If it closes, and I'm no problem because it's either a go now or a go later. And they said, okay, that's great. Let's do it. And so, you know, once I get over to that store, that's when I switched all the job descriptions and started off that way. And didn't we become the number one store in Canada? We were actually number two, but we're the number one store ROI, uh, there's a place in BC that went through some major renovations and the, because the renovations were so hard, they basically gifted them store of the year. But really, you know, statistically, we, sh we should have won it. But we beat Micmac Mall head to head, which was shocking to them. Uh, and so it was at that point, Joan came in as the district manager and she found out what I did with the job descriptions and she was appalled. I said, well, why would you be appalled? We're like, we're the number one store ROI in the country. And she said, it's just not right. You can't do this. And she told me, in fact, you know, I worked with Steve 10 years ago and he smokes and I don't like him. And he's the guy that I made the store manager, even though he's assistant manager. And I said, what? And he says, I don't like Jackie. So you're going to, and I really like Dana. So he's going to become the assistant manager. You're going to fire Steve and you're going to demote Jackie. I said, but we're the number one store in Canada. We're killing it. She said, no, that's what you're doing. And I did, this was on a Wednesday. And I said, and so we, and at, at the at the close on Wednesday, we had a staff meeting that she held. And then she lied to all the staff saying how great we were. Huh. 
And on Friday, I had to pull the trigger on this. The good part was on Friday, she was going to be there for the destruction of the store. And um, so she was going to be there for, for that. But then she had to fly to Calgary immediately that evening. And so after we had our staff meeting, I had a secondary staff meeting without her down at the Brass Rail and Halifax Shopping Center. So we went down there and I said, this is actually what's going on. Steve, I have to fire you. Jackie, you're being demoted. Dana, you're being promoted. I said, but I'm not doing it because uh, I'm supposed to do it on Friday. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but let me figure it out tomorrow because Thursday was my day off. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm, shit's going to hit the fan on Friday. Just be, be, be prepared for it. But you guys don't worry about it. And so anyway, uh, the next day, there's a guy, his name is Freeman Churchill. He owns Orthotics East. I've known him for many, many years. And he was one of the original employees at uh, Aerobics First. And he ran a pedorthic shop, but he was always strolling in the store. He said, Luke, if you ever need a job, come see me. Well, I need a job. And so on the Thursday, I went to uh, I went to Freeman. I said, hey, Freeman, remember how you said if I ever needed a job? I said, I need a job. He said, when do you need to start? I said, Monday. He says, holy shit. Okay. <laughs> I said, great. And then I went down the street. Uh, he's on, he was on Barrington at the time. He was, I went down the street to a place called Loomis and Tools, which was for um, arts and crafts. And I found the, the most beautiful rose-colored uh, uh, rose colored piece of paper that I, I could find. And then I, t- I typed up my resignation letter on it. And so it's uh, February 5th, 1998. Uh, Ms. Carroll, district manager for Zandy Group. Dear Ms. Carroll, I have taken into consideration our discussions, understanding where the company is going and where I personally see myself desiring to go. Comparing the two, there is a conflict between our f- philosophies. In going forward, which is something she always said, it was the buzzword. <laughs> in going forward, I, can, I cannot travel any further with this company's new direction. I'm sure there will be huge financial benefits under your supervision at SportsX554. I wish you the best in the future. I, Luke McDonald, uh, tender my resignation with two weeks' notice as of Friday, February 6, 1998. And so I gave her the lovely pink slip. (laughs) Love that pink slip. So I fired the company uh, from my life, and she was shocked. And then, you know, at, when we were store of the year, it was also just happened to be my 10th anniversary. And they gave me this beautiful gold watch. But I hated the watch now. And at the time, uh, so she was shocked. I didn't do anything. She had to fly to Calgary. She was completely, she couldn't believe that I did this. So she was going to have to fly home, fly to Calgary, explain that the, the manager of the store just quit. Uh, Not today, sort of the number one store. In yeah, Canada. the number one yeah. ROI store in Canada, and uh, and they knew me and liked me, so mm-hmm. she was in trouble, which is yeah. what I thought. But I had a guy named Dan Kerr that had worked for me for many years, and he was always bugging me for a ring because he wanted his five year ring, uh, but he never worked two years back to back. He'd always travel; he'd go somewhere for months, and then he we let him go and rehire him. So we never had, we, we never, he never had five consecutive years, which is what the ring is for. And so um, I know Dan's coming in at six. 
And so Dan comes in. And I say, hey, Dan, just relax here for a second because I got to tell you, I just quit. He said, what? You quit? I said, yeah. He said, no way. And I said, but I got you something. He goes, what? You got me my ring. And I said, no, I didn't get you your ring. I got you something better than that. He said, what? And I took off my gold watch and I gave it to him because it meant nothing to me. And I gave him, I said, Dan, I want you to have this because I know how much it means to you. And he was just shocked. And I said, this is my last day and this is my last gesture. So I just want to give you my watch. And we just thought that was the coolest thing. Three years later, maybe four years later, um, I'm at his wedding. And he's, you know, we're in uh, in Cape Breton and the church is 400 degrees and he's sweating and his bride's just about to come up. And he, I can see him looking around and finally he sees me. And then he shows his watch to me and he just sort of shakes. <laughs> and I can see the sun glaring off this beautiful gold watch that he wore for Lauren's his wedding. And I said, yeah, yeah, man, that is cool. Yeah. I love that watch. Uh, and so that's sort of the, that's what sort of set the stage Uh for the next maneuvers, which was to ultimately buy aerobics first. Mm -hmm. And so all these experiences, you know, made me want to go into the direction of buying the store, which I thought I could do, but I just didn't know how to do it. And then with this move to Freeman's, it gave me clarity. And then that's when I started to uh, make a more specific path in targeting uh, aerobics first is what I want to do in the future because I wanted to control my future. So when I quit this job, it's the first thing that I, I ever did that said, I'm now on my own path. Yeah. And so how how do I operate now? And that's when it, you know I continue to work with the mentors and the business guys and they are very uh, significant in the way that I handled uh, moving into aerobics first. Because all these assets that I had built, like the the youth running series and um, little things like that, you know, they were all transferable with me. So part of my network is is the investment in the things that I did for the people that I worked for and with. Uh, they were my greatest asset in buying a store because I was able to uh, underlay, you know, a store that was you know twenty five years old at the time. And I was under, able to underlay everything that I did in the past and then and then build out from there. And so Aerobics First has a very significant community-driven uh, connection. Uh, and for about five years, they lost it. And it was during those five years that I was operating as sports experts. Uh, I was making significant inroads in the running community uh, because, you know, at that time, uh, I decided to get in shape because Bria was about to be born. So when, you know, in 93, I was 195 pounds. Uh, and in 94, I was 148 pounds. <laughs> and I had uh, 94, 95, 96 were sort of my good running years. But I knew that would be important as a marketing tool. You know, my Absolutely. fitness was a marketing tool. I could get on the racing circuit and then, you know, it would look obvious that, you know, I belonged at aerobics first. And so that, that's sort of the setup. And then that's sort of the attitude that I brought in uh, to Aerobics First because they had lost their connection to the community mm -hmm. and they needed someone. And so that's when Margaret, who is the, uh, a partner of Dave Frazier, um, came and basically invited me over to have a chat with her. And it was at that point that I said, holy mackerel, this could actually happen. Uh, 
And the little gap there, there was about a five-year gap because I worked at uh, worked with Freeman for three years, so I really got good at understanding the foot at a very much more significant level. And so that was excellent. And then I had the history of operating big box stores. And then um, uh, I made another deci- decision to step outside of my comfort zone again was when I went to work with the Allen Way at the city. And so I worked there for five or six years, which paid me a lot more money than I'd ever been paid. And we were able to save a chunk of that in order to buy into aerobics first. Mm-hmm. And so that's when you know, I, I made the next path. So I started up my own little company and I said, How, like, now that I'm out of Orthotics East, what am I going to do? And so I made uh, a chart on how I was going to take advantage of my position at Orthotics East in order to underlay another layer of connections that I could take into uh, aerobics first when I buy it in the future, if it ever happens. And so it was when I went for this government grant is when I ran into Alan Way. He was one of the circles. And so, you know, what he, um, when he met me, he liked my vision because I was showing him PowerPoints on what my plan for the next 10 years was. And he had never seen anybody do that. And he said, well, how about I change your plan and you come for work, work with me for five years? And so I did. And I said, that was really risky because it was completely outside. Mm-hmm. But what I never understood was, you know, I could tell a good story, but I don't know the processes. I don't know. I didn't know how to do a gap analysis. I didn't know how to do a strategic plan. I didn't know how to do anything. But he saw that I could do it and was doing it, but not on paper. Gotcha. And so if you're going to be running a business, you have to have all this stuff down. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to do the business plan. You have to, you know, understand the balance sheets. You got to know the paperwork. And so you, you have know, all the ideas, but yeah, yeah, because uh, a lot of people think uh, entrepreneurialism is free thinking. Right. It's exactly the opposite. And that's what most people don't get. They say, oh, you're an entrepreneur. You can think. No, entrepreneurialism is free thinking within significant restrictions. Hmm. You know, you have to be agile within rules. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. It's not It's not this wide open blue sky crap. It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's how you maneuver in tight situations. And it's your agility. It's like the difference between speed and quick. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? No, absolutely. Right? And so a lot of people miss that. And this is all the stuff that I just sort of garnered myself uh, from all these, all the books that I read. Um, and I sort of I was making my own philosophies. I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my own philosophies. I'm not going to draw from the books. I've read the books. What do I do now? And how do I carry this stuff forward? And so that's, that's what all this stuff is about is, you know, uh, it's my operating system. Mm-hmm. And I got that from reading you know, stuff like this, The Road Ahead. Uh, by the Bill Gates. By Bill Gates. You know, this was The Road Ahead. What year is this? What's the year there? This is 1995, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he wrote The Road Ahead in 95. This was before Microsoft was, you know, it was barely getting going. 
you know, and it wasn't significant. PowerPoint was brand new. And so I was reading this, but I always read, I always read that type of stuff. And so like boom, bust and echo. When I first started to do 10 year plans, this was the echo boom. And so this came out, I think 10 years after boom, bust and echo. So this came out in 2000. Boom, Bust, and Echo was probably 1990. And before that was a book called The Age Wave by Dykewald. And that was a book on demographics into the future and how they could predict the future by demographics. And so I was always putting this stuff together, and that's how the maps came into play. And then that's when I drew the first map, you know, how I was going to buy aerobics first and all that kind of stuff. And so that's eventually, you know, what, what took place. So that's sort of the, you know, the introduction of, you know, the way, uh, the way I operate. And it was my vision for the store mm. is, you know, how do we, how do we build out from this and how do we create really cool stories? And so another one of the stories that was buried in one of those books somewhere is I remember reading uh, about the broken window uh, theory. I think it was, I don't know who wrote the book. But it was basically the way New York's uh, city was turned around uh, and became one of the safest cities on earth was uh, uh, the mayor. And I think it might have been Giuliani at the time. Uh, there was a lot of uh, decrepit buildings with bro all broken windows. And what he did is he invested in even those buildings, were, even though the buildings were abandoned, he invested in new windows for all of them. And as soon as the place looked safer, cars would stop and they'd, they'd do business in the shops and they'd start walking the streets. And it's, it really built out, uh, it, really, it really turned the city around. Mm. Uh, I can't really explain the rest of the story, but that particular story had a profound effect on me. And you know, when I was starting at Aerobics First, I said, you know, we don't have any money. What can I do? Uh, what little things can I do to help this and one of them was uh, picking up litter and not being embarrassed to be the guy that picks up litter uh, that eventually became something called hashtag world litter run uh, and what I understood quite quickly about the hashtags I knew I'd never be the person to write a book uh, but I sort of ran into the concept of half hashtags and how they worked really early and so the idea of a hashtag is that it's basically the spine on your book digitally. Hmm. So you see this book here. So just pretend that spine says yep. hashtag world literon, but you put that into Google search and you click it and then you click images, you'll see thousands of pictures of me and people around the world who use the hashtag. And then when I go do talks, you know, when I was in um, Oman and Doha, I would just put that up and I'd say pick a picture I'll tell you a story <laughs> and that was my presentation so I did 15 different presentations every time I'd present it huh. and it was all based on the picture they 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 picked um, and so when you have hashtag world litter run what a lot of people don't know is that the hashtag fitted forward which is new shoes for homeless people it's the corporate version of hashtag world litter run okay. so uh, I sort of figured out how to do this uh, really by accident because I remember going 
you know, we were, yeah, I was at aerobics first and we're starting to work fairly closely with the Blue Nose Marathon. And I needed to borrow a couple orange Gatorade containers and I knew they had tons of them. So I, I asked Wendy if I could borrow one, Wendy Levy. And she said, sure, you have to go to our warehouse to pick it up. So I go to the warehouse and there's Willie. And he's grunting and moaning because the orange Gatorade containers are behind hundreds of boxes of brand new but past dated Blue Nose shirts. So he had to move all those. Then he had to move 7,500 medals that were never given away, you know, for various reasons. And so he had all these medals. I'm saying, man, that's taking up a lot of warehouse space. And in a warehouse, that's your inventory. The space is your money. And I just asked him, I said, would your, do the owner of this place want to get rid of those? And uh, he said, I don't know if he would. I sure would because this is a pain in the ass. And he said, but ultimately you'd have to ask the Blue Nose Marathon. So I asked Wendy, I said, do you want me to take care of these? And as it turns out, and she said, well, what are you going to do with them? Because they have to be earned. Mm-hmm. And so we can't. <laughs> but the Blue Nose is also significantly, you know, they're trying to be as sustainable as, pro- as possible. So they would have felt too guilty to landfill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they couldn't give them away locally because they weren't earned. The people that did the marathon earned them or whatever distance they did. And so uh, I said, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll take them all off your hands. I'll raise, you know, four or five thousand bucks and I'll put them on the container of love to the Gambia. She said, that's a great idea because she herself had, you know, she's been to Kenya. She's been to Africa. And she really thought that was that would be a great purpose. And I said, and what people will have to do to get them is they'll have to do an act of kindness or pick up litter. And I'll use these as the shirts for the World Litter Run in the Gambia. And I said, if I ever go over there, uh, because now I have a big container and the shirts were only going to be 10% of the container, I collected drum sets, trombones, bugles, uh, trumpets, uh, my, my head went to the chips, the bugled chips. Any any instruments I could find, yeah. because in the Gambia, a set of drums is a small business, yeah. right? Because they all borrow the drums of the the band owns the drums, and so they don't get to practice. So they'll have four or five drummers lined up for their band, who are the session players, and they just wait there until one of the drummers get tired, then the next guy goes in because there's only one set. Well, I sent a, we sent a couple sets of drums and, you know, I sent uh, two of my bionic runners, which are my stand-up bikes, just in case it should come to pass and I'm going to cycle across the Gambia, I may as well have some bikes over there. Worst case scenario is my buddy Pomadou has some bikes. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I we, we sent all that stuff over. And so the shirts, which are, basic, are a significant carbon footprint, because it's waste mm-hmm. went from being a liability to an asset. Yeah. And so that makes the Bluno story even more compelling as a sustainable event because nothing's being wasted. The warehouse base isn't being wasted. The materials in the shirts aren't being wasted. And an act of kindness is happening over in, uh, in the Gambia and they're picking up litter, which actually creates a positive carbon, carbon footprint. Yeah. Yeah, like, and that was your cognition of the, of the event, right? And yeah. I think that, that really just explains the type of person that you are and like the structure that you have in your thinking and not just, you know, like I said, the pie in the sky idea of, oh yeah, I'll take those and I'll figure something out. No, like, 
it's like you meticulously kind of went through that and saw like well i do this i can affect that that can help over here with the litter that can also you know give a motivation to, to do acts of kindness in the community that will probably raise up that community it, like it's just i guess just again this isn't the easiest podcast i've had to do is <laughs> like 40 minutes in and i'm facing my first part here it's it's just amazing to really understand you more as a person and just to see the way you think and you know how you think and the way you approach situations and just well you, you can i find it easy to project into the future yeah and it's easy to predict what's going to happen in the future if you're projecting into the future but if you're never thinking about the future you can't create the future that's fair and so that's that's the story of all these books like mm. you know the long tail that's you know that's that was a groundbreaking breaking book you know 20 years ago but these are all guide you know these are the books that guide the future i used to read faith popcorn and mega trends and you know reading bill gates before he was a billionaire uh, and all that stuff and then you set the template because you don't it's not about money or any of that type of stuff it's about you know what effect can you have on individual people mm-hmm. and so instead of trying to do things in a big way i do a lot of little things in a small way which over time looks like it's big. Mm-hmm. So I read another one called A Mind at the Time, and I, A Mind at a Time. Uh, and it's uh, uh, learning, it's, it's uh, by Mel Levine, and it just says, uh, learning expert shows how every child can succeed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was reading this basically for Bria, but everything I was reading about Bria, I just found it was, you know, you know it was going to be interesting to be able to do it individually for staff Mm -hmm. you know how do you you know how do you make everything personal in in a store of you know Mm -hmm. 20 20 people you know you have to look at them you know one person at a time it's not a staff it's people individuals Mm -hmm. make the staff Mm -hmm. you don't have a staff so to speak and at the same time, too, is approaching the book like you approached, um, what was that first book you mentioned, where it's like, you know, read this like you're going to yeah, teach it. Yeah, like, read this book as if you're going to teach it. Yeah. And then, you know, it was really interesting, back to sitting on the coach of death here, is that uh, I can't remember who said it, but I, I'm going to say Ian Ross said it because I told him that I couldn't read anymore. And he said, remember that book? He said, read this book as if you're going to teach it he said well why don't you just you've read the books why don't you just live them Mm. i said Mm. cool because anything i read now i'm not necessarily learning anymore i'm actioning it Mm -hmm. i'm just going to do it Mm -hmm. and once i start to not spend time reading i had time to do stuff Mm. and so in one of the books i had written i think it was in the book the life you can save uh, I wrote uh, a little line. I just said, time income. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. And it's just, it reframed how I get paid. And I don't get paid with money. I get paid with time. Mm-hmm. And the profitability of me is what I do with that time. Mm-hmm. And so what I do with that time is I pick up litter and I pick up products. So that when we go back to the, the shirts, you have to remember those shirts were litter. Right? right, it was waste, yeah. and then I said, "Oh, wouldn't that be interesting if I approached New Balance and, uh, or I spoke to New Balance, or I spoke to uh, uh, Saucony and found out what their litter is?" Mm-hmm. And so 
eventually, you know, because some of the shoes I was placing on homeless people, it did hit the press. And a guy named Brad Markova, who was formerly the uh, general manager of Saucony Canada, then he went to Merrill. What I, what I didn't understand was that Wolverine Worldwide owned both Saucony and Merrill. So it was all these brands under one house. And when he saw this piece in the, uh, uh, in the Chronicle Herald, uh, he saw me and then he saw that I was fitting homeless people with, with uh, some used and some new shoes. He a- actually asked me how I did it. I said, well, what I did was I created a database of all the homeless people in Halifax on, you know, lo and behold, uh, uh, Google spreadsheets on a shared Google document. And so the agencies that worked, um, that wanted shoes, could put their clients' initials in it and the location. And so I knew where to find them. Hmm. And so they would just put in the information, I'd find the shoes, then I'd drop the shoes off to them. And this hit the, hit the press, which wasn't necessarily a good thing because I was getting swamped by too much demand and not enough shoes. Uh, what I ended up doing is I sent him the data. I sent him a link to the database. He looked at it and he said, "Holy shit, you have you have actual names and initials and location." I said, "Yeah." So he took it up to his boss, and uh, three weeks later, they sent me you know between six and eight hundred pairs of mm. uh, Merrill boots and shoes that were all brand new, but they were not sellable. Uh, you know, there's some imperfections, but some were older styles that came in late and they just couldn't get them to the market. And also they would take care of some stores. So some stores that didn't have moving inventory, they would swap the product out. And sometimes those boxes were wrinkled or the, the laces weren't right and they couldn't repurpose them. And it was too expensive to repurpose them. And so they had all these extra shoes. And then lo and behold, you know, f- for the last four years, you know, generally once or twice a year, they send me between six and 800 pairs of shoes and boots. Hmm. And so then it became a thing. And then later on, New Balance heard what we're doing. I said, you know, if your warehouse space is more valuable than the product that's in it, the product is litter. And they said, well, do you know what? As it turns out, we're, we have X amount of thousand shoes and uh, we like what you're doing and why don't you take these two? Hmm. And so that's been a sustainable program over the last uh, five years where we've placed more than 5,000 pairs of shoes on homeless people in Halifax and throughout Nova Scotia. And it's ongoing and it's systemized. Yeah. Uh, Beacon House in uh, Sackville now has about 3,000 pairs of shoes in inventory that they can give out through uh, their food bank because mm-hmm. shoes are food. You know, they, they energize for a while and they take 8 to 12 months to digest. Mm-hmm. And so I, I decided to use their processes instead of mine because the way I was doing it was taking up too much time. And so in the room here, that's why all the shoes are there. So that's the Fort Knox of shoes. <laughs> And so, it, is, it is quite impressive as well. Yeah, well, <laughs> this morning, uh, you know, I had uh, four different sizes in my in my car, and little John was on Quimpool, and he said, "Hey, buddy," I said, "Sorry, I don't have any. I don't have any. Oh, don't have any cash, but you can take a bagel." And he said, "No, I don't want a bagel." And I looked at his shoes, and I saw he had a pair of New Balance eight uh, forties uh, on, but they're really old. I'd given them given to him a couple years ago and I turned around my car in there I said what size are you he said nine and a half lo and behold I had a pair of nine and a half Cortex New Balance 880s handed him the shoe and he just about lost his mind you know so now he's going to have comfortable feet that's pretty cool 
and like it's it's not something it's not something just to breeze over either because you're such a small act in that one thing of just giving someone like said comfortable shoes that fit yeah like that affects someone's livelihood so much like they're comfortable for one right yeah and then they can get places and it just it just raises that quality of life that that floor just a little yeah bit, just right? just a little bit and it's interesting because it's also caused a problem like i've i have friends that have told me that their friends you know posted on facebook saying you know dude you have to have a lot worse shoes than that if you're going to be panhandling me can you imagine mm. and i had to comment i went to that person's facebook page and said listen i gave that guy the shoes do you think he's doesn't need the money do you think he right you know i said that's ridiculous uh yeah like like someone has to be completely broken to be worthy of compassion right like that's like that's a broken thinking that is broken yeah you know who's like come on yeah and part of that connection like when you think about the world litter run you think about fitted forward uh you also have to think about you know there's perfectly good product that's considered litter in the minds of general managers and ceos Mm -hmm. I said, well, I can handle that. But in the mind of a city, often the homeless people are the litter of the city. They're the human litter. Hmm. They're the trash. And that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. They've had series of unfortunate events. And, you know, all of us are, you know, very close to it. We just don't know it. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, when, a, you, when, when I think about uh, the homeless people, what can you do? Well, you know, you can pick them up. Mm-hmm. You can lift them up a little bit, and and that'll give them a little bit of hope to say, you know, it's not all bad, mm-hmm. right? And they can look at their shoes and say, you know, it's not all bad. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe we can get going from here. And so that's you know, and that's sort of how I de-stress myself by picking up litter and giving away shoes. How do you not feel good about that? And you take the stress off the community because, you know, a part of you know the book, uh, which I had the hardest time with which was in life you can save which says basically if good people the reason why there's still starvation in the world is that the good people don't tell anybody how good they are hmm. so they keep that quiet and they you know they'll quietly give someone twenty dollars a little and they won't pronounce it and the argument in this particular book is that if you do it it's like it's this contagious it's contagious, like a yawn or laughter. Mm-hmm. If people see you doing it, they know that you, so you're their window to doing good shit. And so what I found myself doing was taking, you know, you know, taking the social media mm-hmm. a bit to the extreme. And so it looks sort of show-offy. Um, but when I'm doing this stuff, I'm putting it up there for very specific people to see. Mm-hmm. So when I put a post up, I'll tag someone and say, hey, look, I'm doing this on your behalf. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is they do it and all the stuff gets paid forward through acts of kindness. And that's in, in Africa, it's significant because they have loads of time and nothing to do and they don't realize it's just picking up a piece of litter is giving the world a hug. Mm-hmm. And if, they, if they're not angry at the person that threw it there, they actually get a serotonin hit. Hmm. If you go into it thinking, I'm really pissed off at the person that threw this, you don't get anything for you. So mm-hmm. it's not really altruistic, is mm-hmm. it? That's true. Right? And so, uh, but it's it's a good mechanism to say, hey, I can always do something good. I can always pick up a piece of litter. It's everywhere. And they can do it, and they can make substantial inroads. The beauty of them 
is when they do a litter run like Mollet, who's the 2017 world litter run champ, uh, you know, he'll engage a whole city and he'll engage 200 people and they'll go pick up 100 tons of litter. Mm -hmm. So what you see here is the world litter run is individuals doing little bits. They're doing years in backhoes and dump trucks mm -hmm. and they're really hitting areas in a significant way. And so, but they won't do over there. If they don't see you in the ditches here, they're not going to do it over there. Right. And so when people say, what do you do? Why do you do all that stuff in Africa? And I say, well, I'm just building a big mirror. Yeah. I said, well, how do you mean a big mirror? So I can see, I can see what they're doing and they can see me and it's just reflecting back and forth. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so that's, that's why we have significant connections there and what we can do with money over there is, you know, uh, way more impactful than money here. So action is more important here. Money is more important there. That's fair. Right. Yeah. And so I have a lot of time to do stuff. And just like speaking of time, it's, it's such an important lesson is like what you do with your time. Like with your mind, like time is income. Is that was that? Right. Mean? And like, sometimes we think of our time, like a past thing, like we get home, ah, throw the feet up, you know, yeah. watching TV, go to bed, go to work. Yeah. It's like, is that really leading to a satisfying experience? Like, whereas yourself, you're saying like in my spare time for stretch leap, I'm going to pick up litter. I'm going to help people. I am going to be doing these things because I get that hit of serotonin. Like I get benefit from it. Right. But not only yourself, you're benefiting other people as well. Right. And it's, it's just so interesting where like you're saying is if you're picking up litter and shaking your fist at the man, like you're yeah, not yeah. going to get anything out of that. Yeah. And it, it can seem like some of us need a, glowing like shirt recommendation hashtag whatever to get up and to help someone whereas you know if we make it a part of our daily routine to give the world a hug or just try and help someone up like do what you can in your spare time and reap the maybe even selfish benefits of feeling good about yeah, yourself for it's, it, well it just becomes a reflex yeah you don't even you're you know you become uh unconsciously competent yeah you don't even know that you're actually, it's like my first story of um, an unconsciously competent shoe fitter. Mm -hmm. But I don't think of it like this because it's so natural, yeah. right? Uh, and when I did that crazy presentation, well, I wasn't good at that, but I didn't even know I was doing the other stuff, right? right? And so that's sort of the stuff that I sort of came to grips with while I sat still for the first time in my life, you know, when I was literally here for five weeks or mm -hmm reframing how I was going to come back uh, to the store because I'd forgotten a lot of things. I didn't know any of my customers. My natural, you know, I said I had, uh, you know, 10,000 people that I knew their shoe sizes for. I lost all that. Mm -hmm. And so every person that came in, I didn't recognize anymore. So that's why I had to start to use Facebook very significantly as a tool so that I could recognize people. And I still have to do it to this, to this day. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll see the same people over and over. And I know I know who they are, but I don't know who they are. Right. So I'll hit Facebook, figure it out, and say, ah, mm -hmm. right? And it's it's just, it's a tool to allow me to operate. Right. And that's why uh, that's why I have to operate the way I, I operate. And it's so interesting to see, like, you having to take almost like a system reboot, but you didn't lose who you were through that. Like, the, the core of who Luke was is still, was still there. It was just yeah. learning how to let that come come through again almost. yeah and and be more purposeful with it yeah it wasn't like everything i did was ad hoc right and you know even that's a, a little bit are a little bit are uh, arguable 
because I did, I always made these 10-year bindings. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the last two 10-year bindings uh, and the next one I'm working on right now is basically the operating system. Uh, and so, you know, interesting. it's just, it's just, I, I just, I, it is interesting. Um, and the, the cool thing it, it, is it works. So uh, one philosophy is called the Oatrigger philosophy. And the second one is uh, hollow totem pole, but I'll, we'll do another podcast. Yeah. On those, I was going to say there's, be... there's so much more to go through, but <laughs> so if someone wanted to get involved in the world litter run, how would they go about that? They'd go outside and pick up litter. Period. <laughs> and they can, if they want to put it on social media, great hashtag World Litter Run with a capital W, capital L, and a capital R. So world hashtag World Litter Run, and tag me in on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could tag Aerobics First because a lot of this stuff is built out uh, mm-hmm. from Aerobics First, uh, basically for marketing purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just happens to be really fun, mm-hmm. you know. So it's uh, so, they, and then the other one is hashtag fitted forward. But most of the stuff that I do isn't, you know, it's it's to be able to be picked up individually and do it. You don't have to do anything through me. Yeah. You just go do some cool stuff and yeah. have some fun with it. It's, it's purposeful marketing that lets the individual do it for themselves. Like yeah. almost, yeah. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. So um, okay, I have two questions for you and we'll wrap it up. Okay. Number one, I, we have, like, we're surrounded by books right now. Yeah. <laughs> if you could like suggest a couple books to someone, like off the top of your head, what would uh, you suggest? Off the top of my head, there's probably three. Um, and one would be uh, The Life You Can Save by Peter Singer. Uh, two would be... Uh, uh, the Starfish and the Spider, which is a book on leadership. And uh, the other one, which is a really tough book on leadership, is uh, by the Arbinger Group. And it's called, uh, it's going to come to me. This always takes a second. Leadership and Self-Deception. Hmm. So those are going be my most highly recommended books, those three. Hmm. Covey is a great one, but it's a really... It's a really hard read, and it's something that should be done and practiced and built into your life. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's it's good. But I, I could I could name it. Good to Great is a great one. It's by Jim Collins. It's also really good. Yeah, because I wasn't going to put like a number on it. I think <laughs> there's just so many, and like there, every book serves a different purpose and stuff. So yeah. just, like every time we get you on, I'll just ask for more book yeah, recommendations. Yeah. I, I, we'll go I from there. A, I, have a, I have a few other ones that yeah. would be good as well. And I mentioned a few along the way yeah. that, that were absolutely that were interesting to me um so the one question that i ask everyone who comes on the show what is one tip that you have for a satisfying and healthy life uh do the getting do the getty do the getting the getting <laughs> so you have three people doing around talking about doing stuff mm-hmm. be the first one to go do something mm. act immediately make it a reflex mm. so we should do this don't allow it to be a decision on who's going to do it you go do it do the getting that's like when you were describing like your your structure of like when you were imagining having you know aerobics first and what you would do with it that's kind of what i i saw was the difference between that like that pie in the sky idea versus having structure within or like acting within a structure idea is acting that's the important part is finding the ways to act and yeah i'm I'm trying to think uh, i have a little quote for that it's what uh, 
the definition of a nightmare hmm. is a dream without action. So you can have all these dreams, but if you don't action it, it's a nightmare. The dream is a nightmare. Yeah. So you have to work towards it. So, yeah. you know, everything I do, I do. Like, you know, people say, oh, you're really busy on Facebook. No, man, I'm really busy. Period. Yeah. <laughs> Period. Yeah. I'm doing shit. You just see a little bit of it on Facebook. Yeah. And most of that, everything I do on Facebook and Instagram, for the most part, is, is, a, uh, is a gratitude towards someone. Yeah. I'm thankful for having the opportunity to do good, but I'm also thankful for the person that inspired me to do good. Yeah. And that becomes uh, self-fulfilling. Yeah. Right. So you can create a lot of momentum, but uh, you got to go do stuff. And that's kind of the idea behind like Stephen Pressfield's book, uh, The War of Art. Where uh, as opposed to the art of war. Yeah. It's, yeah. I like that. Fun, right? Yeah. And it's, how like this the inactivity is just a breeding ground for depression anxiety and how if we just get past that and just act yeah then it just becomes so much easier yeah. and then it's easy like on the last podcast i did with chris we talked about this inertia that happens when that inactivity is low and just act yeah i like just just do, do it. it just do it i hate, hate, <laughs> I hate nike the, but hate just nike, do it but, you know, there's a lot to be said for that but, yeah uh, uh yeah mantra for sure Perfect. Yeah. Well, Luke, I, I already can't wait to get you back on. Um, I got it's the easiest podcast I've ever had to do. And I appreciate that. And uh, you got me on a roll, man. Yeah, I knew it would happen. No, I love it. But I don't get to tell that front end. Yeah. Uh, mostly, I just people see the snippets. Yeah. And I I do like to tell this one so people can graph some of the stuff that looks a little bit loony. Yeah. Uh, it's very. It's actually to me. It's it's very. It's very methodical. And I think it helps to even explain like, like further what you're doing today and why you're doing it. Yeah. And I, I like that a lot. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, another, you know, just on YouTube and stuff like this, anything by uh, Simon Sinek is fantastic. Like mm -hmm. finding your why and how trends work and things like that. Yeah. I found that to be uh, really interesting because it validated some of the stuff I was doing because mm -hmm. I thought I was winging it. But. You know, sometimes you're proud that you're winging it. You think you're inventing something, but you're really not. Right. You find out that, oh, yeah, this is actually, you know, a proven process. Yeah. And I, I like, uh, I find that uh, encouraging. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the part you played in, you know, bringing Bria to the world. <laughs> and uh, just thank you for what you do. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Ty. Thank you. Thank you.